Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. First off, I want to thank our supporting partner for this month and that's Wahoo. Wahoo are a market leader in road cycling, but still fairly new to the mountain bike world. However, they are serious about getting involved and they're already supporting top athletes like Tiny Seagrave, Danny Hart, Wim Masters, Brendan Fairclough, Loic Bruni and many more. And I'm stoked to have them supporting the podcast this month. Wahoo were kind enough to support my training for the EWS 100 in the Tweed Valley earlier this year. That means that I've been using Wahoo products since my training began back in November last year, and I've personally found them to be really intuitive, robust, and a great addition to my riding and training. The GPS watch, the Element Rival, provides you with everything you need for tracking your training right there on your wrist. With customizable profiles for each activity, it's your perfect companion for riding, gym sessions, indoor sessions, and much more. If you want a GPS computer to mount to your bike, then you've got the Element Bolt or the Roam to choose from. I've been using the Bolt, which is the smaller of the two. It's got fully customizable data screens on a really easy to read display, and it connects to your phone to make it really simple to set up too. I also have a Wahoo Kick, a smart trainer, which has been invaluable for targeted interval sessions, allowing me to really take my training up a notch. Pair the Kicker with Wahoo X, their one-stop shop for training and virtual racing platforms, and you never know, you might even start to enjoy some indoor training too. All of those pair with the awesome Wahoo Ticker heart rate strap, which is really comfortable to wear, feels soft against the skin, and it gives you the most accurate heart rate data for all of your training. You can check out all that Wahoo have to offer over at wahoofitness.com. While you're here, don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. There's buttons to help you get that done over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. Merch is available if you want to support the show. That's over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. And you can get issue two of our print project, Downtime EP, by heading to downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP now. All the links you need for all of this stuff are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. You can also get in touch and give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook by heading to at Downtime Podcast. All right, it's time for this week's guest. Martin Whiteley is someone who likes to work behind the scenes. However, many of you will know his name as he's played a huge part in shaping our sport. From the mid-80s onwards, Martin has been involved with the growth of mountain biking and through his time as CEO of Australian Cycling, working at the UCI and running some of the biggest downhill race teams in history, Martin has played a role in shaping our sport into what it is today. When he got in touch to ask if I'd like to visit his HQ in Spain for a chat, then I jumped at the chance. With all this history, it's hard to pick and choose what to cover. So this episode is pretty long and I split it into two parts. Part one covers Martin's background and his time at the UCI. We hear about his work with Global Racing, G-Cross Honda, Trek World Racing and the YT Mob. And we get his thoughts on talent development. Part two will be dropping tomorrow where we'll talk about Red Bull, the Discovery Takeover, athlete management and plenty more. For now, here's part one of this wide-ranging conversation with Martin Whiteley. Martin Whiteley, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. Thank you for uh, inviting me out here. It's a real honour and a pleasure to be sat down with you. It's a pleasure to have you here, mate. It's been a while in the making, but I'm glad we're here. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I guess uh, on behalf of the podcast and everyone that listens, we, we do owe you a thank you um, for more than today. Um, I'm not sure you realise necessarily, but you are actually a a big part of the podcast existing. So in the early days, it was very, very hard for me to get guests and uh, people I didn't know what a podcast was. They certainly didn't know who I was um, and uh, lots of unread Instagram DMs and various other ways of trying to get people. Um, but I got in touch with you. Uh, it was it was getting pretty desperate and it was almost not going to happen. Um, and you very kindly got back to me and uh, 
and asked me who I wanted from your roster of athletes, put me in touch with uh, Justin Leov and Nico Mullally. Um, and it really did help get things going. And as a lot of people will know, Nico's become a big yeah. part of the podcast over the years as well. So uh, on behalf of uh, the listeners and also for me, thank you for that because it means a lot from a, a a little guy that was trying to get going. And uh, yeah, no, I really appreciate uh, it. We've all been there. You know, <laughs> you have to start somewhere. And, uh, you know, if you're in a position to help someone, why not? You know, there's no skin off my teeth just to introduce you to a few people. And I'm really glad to see you know how your following's grown and how the podcast has become you know one of the one of the best ones in the industry thanks man yeah appreciate that it's been a it's been a fun journey so far hopefully we can keep <laughs> it going well let's um let's start where we start most of these things and we kind of wind the clock back a little bit i'm kind of interested to get some background uh on yourself like where you come from where your interest in cycling comes from just mm. tell us a little bit initially where did you grow up you were back in australia right i grew up in uh, the northern suburbs of sydney uh-huh. in australia uh, a little suburb called taramara and uh, yeah, we were you know lower middle class family. Um, we lived in like a two bed, three bedroom fibro home in 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 a, quite a nice area. But you, my father got the house from his aunt for like ten thousand pounds in the sixties as kind of a gift. And uh, yeah, you know we never owned a new car. Dad was always buying second hand cars. He loved motor racing, and introduced me to that. And he said, "Look, the poor man's form of motor racing is bike racing." <laughs> And uh, so if you want to go bike racing, I'm happy to help you get a bike. And uh, in the end, though, I, I, I got my first race bike from mowing lawns and doing jobs in the neighborhood because I didn't really want my dad to spend money on, on that. I wanted uh-huh. to try and do it myself. And I started road racing, I think, when I was 15 and uh, enjoyed it, but found it a little bit of a a culture that was hard to break into you know okay. if you turned up and you didn't have shaven legs they sort of <laughs> mocked you and yeah I didn't really feel like I was in with that crowd a lot of them you know they'd been in it for generations and I was coming from a non-cycling background into cycling so I found it hard to break into uh, did pretty well went on to national champs riding junior road team time trial and different things but I used to always take my beta bike off-road I used to just like we didn't have cyclocross as a sport in Australia, so I used to just like to ride in the bush tracks on my old Oxford 10-speed bike and just wish there'd been some kind of bike that would have, you know, made that easier. And I think in 1982, got my first mountain bike. So, yeah, so quite an early start. Yeah, and there, there was race organisation fairly early, right? As a, as a young yeah. individual, you were getting involved in that in the neighbourhood? Yeah, I mean, when I was really young, we'd organise, like, challenge races, from the dragsters against the regular bikes, you know, when I was like 10 or something. But then in 1984, uh, when I was 20, I organized the first national mountain bike champs. Uh So after a couple of years, I just thought, well, I've had a bike for a couple of years. How many more are out there? You know, there was no internet back then. We didn't really know what was going on. So the best way to find out was to uh, organize a race and see if people turned up. And so that was in it's actually on Maddie Lehekoyner's birthday. When we look back on it, when I organised it, April in 1984, and I think 68 bike riders turned up, and we did one cross-country loop of 84 kilometres because we didn't know what the sport was. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I think the guy who won won on a cruiser. You know that that cross between a BMX and a mountain bike. Yeah, but that was the start, and and at that point organised the Australian Mountain Bike Association AMBA, and. Uh, started to get clubs going and doing mm-hmm. all that to try yeah. and promote the sport when you know I was a 20 21 year old yeah what was going along on alongside that kind of from a I 
I guess, uh, an education and a career perspective. Where did you see life go and what were you up to away from riding at that point? Um, at, at that time, I had a, a proper job as a, as a retail manager with a, with a department store. So I was in the Woolworths department um, chain. So I started that when I was 17 and a half straight out of school. And at 19, I was, a, I was a manager of a fairly large retail store and uh, a lot of work, a lot of employees, but a lot of good training in how to do merchandising and business management and accounting and all that stuff. So it was a good first-hand experience and that has carried with me all my life, mm -hmm. that two and a half years. And I was also working in radio. I was uh, on Australia's Triple J radio station doing a comedy show, doing comedy writing. And so that was on the weekends and Monday to Friday, you know, retail and then in the off hours running a National Mountain Bike Association. So, <laughs> you know, at that time when you're that young, you, you, you're so enthusiastic and you just want to get things done. You, you're in your empire building phase. You think, yeah. you, you know, there's no stopping. You, unlimited energy and I sort of look at what I was doing back then, typing up licenses at, you know, one in the morning in the office and... Yeah, a crazy time, but but it did lay the groundwork for Australian mountain biking, and you know to go on and organise a national series, national champs, and all that, and then ultimately the world champs in '96 in Cairns. It was yeah. a it was a wonderful period, you know. Yeah, and you've you've latterly found out that your father was involved in organising bike races. That yeah, you, you weren't aware of. Yeah, that's you know that's where I think the genetics is coming from. You know, he after he died, my mother was going through his stuff and found some old negatives and. We had one of them blown up. It was a really cool shot of him sort of racing downhill in 47. And, um, and, and he had result books and he had rankings and points. And so he was, you know, doing that sort of stuff. And even though I was working at the Federation then, then lately after that, after, at the UCI, doing that kind of work for a living, he never mm. once said to me, oh, I used to do that. Or, look, here's the book where I did rankings. It was just something he kept to himself and... Uh, yeah, we discovered it after he passed, and and uh, obviously a picture of him on his bike is featured in my office. Is you know, it's genetic. Yeah, it's a very cool shot. It harks. It looks like a repack kind of shot from the early days of mountain biking, but it was way earlier, right? Yeah, it does. It does. So, um, I think you know, for, for me, probably not knowing was a good thing because otherwise I might have felt I want to be my own person and try something else because mm -hmm. obviously dad did that and he's been talking about it since i was a kid so to copy him is probably not too original let me try something else let me, and, and there was an opportunity for me to the day i got the job offer to be a ceo at australian cycling i also got a job offered to be a breakfast dj and <laughs> a radio station in queensland so i had to sort of decide do i want to go into radio full time or do i want to do this cycling stuff and and my uncle who helped me get the job in retail was really disappointed that I would leave that so early. He said, you know, you can go on and be an area manager and do all this other stuff. But I'd got what I wanted out of that, you know, yeah. that, that I didn't see that I was going to learn a great deal more. And, and the radio was interesting, but it's a very fickle industry. You know, you're in favor one minute, then your ratings drop, and then you're back on some country radio station calling horse races or something. Mm -hmm. So the bike, thing was more of a passion project for me i really loved bike racing i'd organized a bike race at mount panorama the famous road racing circuit for cars so yeah. that was something my dad really loved it was like you know we love motor racing and you're organizing a bike race on the hallowed mount panorama and so i did that from 79 to 85 i think uh -huh. so yeah i thought that's really what i'm good at i'm not a great bike rider but i can organize stuff and 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 i really 
when you would organize a bike race, whether it was the mountain bike nationals or a road race, and people were turning up in the car park with their bikes and stuff, it's like something I thought of one night is now a date on a calendar and is now affecting all these people's lives and they're all having a, a really good day and it, you felt like you could really you know, make some sort of impact, make so, some sort of, uh, you know, help develop the sport, help get more people into it. And uh, I've always seen cycle sport as a family. I've never been like, I'm a, I'm a downhill guy and I, uh -huh. I, can't, I can't stand cyclocross or BMX not for me or I'm a roadie. I, to me, it's all two-wheel family. And that was something I brought to the Federation when I worked there. I brought mountain biking in under the umbrella at Australian Cycling and, and, and you know, BMX has come in under the Olympic fold and cyclocross was something I got to work on later in my UCI career. And I love it all. And I, and I, I never once decided I'm only going to do the one thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. How, so how old were you when the opportunity to be CEO of Australian Cycling came up? You're quite young, yeah? Yeah, I was... I hadn't turned 21 yet, so I, I was, and I, I'd really just gone into the New South Wales office, which was the state office, to get a permit to run a mountain bike race, mm -hmm. and the lady there said, oh, you know, they're looking for a CEO next door at the national office, and I said, so, and she said, well, you should apply for it, and I said, come on, I haven't done anything that would qualify me for that, so just go in and ask for an application, I went in, they said, oh, we've, we've fixed our roster of candidates and we're going to interview them next week but i'll call the president and see if he can add you on yeah so i was added on the last minute and i walked in there was a bunch of 60 year old guys sitting around a table and and the president who was a police sergeant and um i did my interview i told them about the mountain biking thing which some of them didn't even know what it was and uh, my retail management and so forth. And as I left, the president walked me to the elevator and he said, you know, you did pretty well. Um, I think the only thing going against you is your, is your age. Okay. And as the door shut, I said, I can guarantee you I'll grow out of that. <laughs> and, and got the call the next morning and told I, I had the job. There you go. The, the comedy writing came into its own. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> and that was, that was, there was a lot of headwind, you know, going into that position as a 21-year-old. You know, by the time I took up the position, I was 21 and... You know, the press and a lot of people in Australia said, who's this kid? Why, why is he suddenly doing this job? And, and you had a lot of responsibility overseeing national teams and Olympic selections. And Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, so it, it was really learning on my feet. And I think I probably struggled a bit the first year, really getting an understanding of the politics of the job. Uh -huh. It is a very political position. But, you know, we went on to establish the Australian Institute of Sport and bring mountain biking in. And, you know, from that came a lot of great success. We had some really, you know, during the 90s, um, late 80s, early 90s, Australians track cycling, for example, was yeah. on top of the world. We had, we're breaking, making inroads into the Tour de France. And then, you know, people like Cadell Evans came through the ranks. Mm -hmm. and, and so we had, you know, some really big successes. And yes, I did that for 10 years. Yeah. And that gave you, I guess, exposure and access to the world stage, right? That's where you started to travel to World Cup events across all cycling disciplines, I suppose, but started to see the, the wider world of, of mountain biking and what it had to offer. Yeah. I mean, in 89, I was at the track championships in France and um, I was introduced to a man who'd just been appointed by the UCI as the head of the new mountain bike commission, uh -huh. uh, Mark LeMay from Canada. And he said, we need someone from Oceania, that region, to help us with the rules and the sport. So you're it. You know, we heard that you run mountain biking down there. So I was put onto the mountain bike commission and wrote the first rule book for mountain bike UCI in 89, ready for the worlds in 1990. So yeah. So during my tenure at Australian Cycling, I was doing technical delegate jobs, flying out to World Cups and, and doing some of that. So the 
early 90s were a very busy time for mountain bike internationally, mm -hmm. establishing the World Cup circuit um, and and the rules and so on. And and also, you know, for myself, trying to get Australia to host the World Championships because the Worlds have always been held in America or Europe. So to be the first country to host them outside of that region was a battle. You yeah. know, we, we bid for 94 and got rejected. And then we made a deal with USA Cycling that we'll support them for 94 with Vale if they'll support us for 96. Mm -hmm. And yeah, eventually got it. You know, so I left Australian Cycling at the end of 95 and had to resign from my position of organizer for the World Champs because I was moving to UCI, but yeah. then came back as technical delegate. And it was a very proud moment to see the Worlds happen there. Yeah. So that was that your route into UCI then, that kind of getting involved in rule writing and stuff was how you ultimately ended up working there? Yeah. I, I mean, during the World Champs in Vale in 94, uh, the then mountain bike coordinator, Chris Payne, asked me if I'd like to come and work at the UCI and take over his job. Mm -hmm. He was going to be moved up to the next position as sports director overseeing all the disciplines. Yeah. And I said yes, but no, um, because... Firstly, it's a, a half a world away. Secondly, I was going into nine years at the Federation. I felt like I wanted to commit to 10 years to uh -huh. them. After they'd taken a chance on a 20-year-old kid, I needed to, I think, show some loyalty that, to them. Mm -hmm. And so I said, look, can I come back to you in about a year? And, they, and, and fortunately, you know, they waited. They could have found someone else. Um, but it's a big decision. It's not like moving from the UK to Germany or something like that. Moving from Australia to... Switzerland is logistically complicated, <laughs> moving all your gear over there. And then also, you know, leaving friends and family behind, knowing you can't just pop back on a weekend and yeah. go to a wedding or a birthday or something. You, you really have to commit to it. And moving to a French-speaking country where, you know, Lausanne's in the French part of Switzerland, where you have to, um, you know, communicate and live in a whole different language. And as Australians, we don't typically speak other languages. Uh-huh. Yeah, and a bit like the British, I suppose, yeah, yeah. you know, even yeah. though you're a lot closer, we, we don't need to. I mean, I, for some reason, I took language classes at school and I did two years of French and four years of German, but never thought I'd need them. <laughs> I ended up moving to a country that basically speaks German and, and French. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. So, yeah, that was also a bit of a struggle at the beginning there, wondering why I'd moved there and, and is this really what I want to do, but found the key to what I wanted to do there and, and then made it work. Yeah. What was your job title there? I started as the mountain bike coordinator. Okay. So I was responsible for anything mountain bike. So yeah. that meant site inspections, rules, meetings, um, technical delegate. Uh, basically, the department is now six staff. Uh -huh. When I was one, don't have a secretary, don't have an assistant. You did all yourself, the rankings, everything. So every result that would come from around the world, I'd punch that in the ranking system <laughs> Every meeting that had to be organized for the Mountain Bike Commission, every rule change, every site inspection for a World Cup, every World Cup. So I think, you know, that's where I did probably 30 weeks straight of work during summer. You just, if you're not at a World Cup, you're inspecting a new venue. Yeah. Or you're inspecting a World Champs venue for two years in advance and you're doing all of that. I don't know how many times I walked down downhills, uh, you know, it'd be seven in the morning on the pre-race. <laughs> pissing with rain in Nevergal, Italy, and I'm walking down a hill thinking, what are my friends doing today? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, it, you know, it's a huge honor to be doing that job, but there are times where it's really, really, really tough. Yeah. And, uh, and you'd finish that race, you're on a huge high, the race went really well, straight in the van, back to the office, then start doing the rankings, doing all that paperwork, off to the next venue. So yeah, I, um, I did five years of that. It's about as much as I could do. I think I got to the point where 
if I keep doing this, the sport's not going to benefit from me being here. You, it, okay. needs a, it needs a fresh look, a fresh face to come yeah. in and say, great, you got us to this point, where can we take it from mm. here? Otherwise, I, I get I like you know term limits. I, I think people should have certain term limits in certain jobs, especially in federations and government. That you know you're fresh for a while and then you start to get a bit stale. So. Yeah, yeah. In a job that's that demanding, yeah, mm. for sure. So yeah, I was, I was uh, another you know it was another big change after that, but it was it was worthwhile. What was the UCI's kind of view or approach to mountain biking then because it was still relatively young in the grand scheme of cycling right yeah but you know the world cup during the 90s when you know i was working there with the grundig and so forth was a very valuable property for the world uh, for the uci and unlike road cycling which the calendar is pretty much dictated by the grand tour organizers yeah the mountain bike calendar is determined by the uci you know they're the they're the um the big stakeholder they own the world cup and yeah. that world cup is the skeleton of which everything hangs and so if they control the world cup and can really manage the growth of that discipline without outside forces it's mm -hmm. very important to them so i think uh even though the world cup was owned by the uci in the 90s it was managed by another agency so they were happy to license that out as long as the calendar was within their control because you can't have other major events on the same weekend as a world cup yeah so once you've laid out your world cup dates then the rest of the world uh, world calendar falls into line with that uh -huh. so it's an important it's an important property for the uci and mountain biking yeah there were some old boys around the management board that don't really consider didn't consider mountain biking a real deal until it got olympic status and then suddenly you know, the federations were getting some funding and realized that this was an important discipline, especially the cross country. But I think, um, I think it's right up there for them. You know, it, it, it's, it's uh, like I say, an important discipline for their, their calendar, for the development of the sport, how many people cross over from mountain biking to road cycling. There's countless examples of that. So it's a definite feeder uh, sport for them in some ways. But... Um, the other thing that was really important to me at the time was mountain biking was practiced at the highest level in all six inhabited continents. Mm -hmm. You could find top quality racing where road cycling was really struggling at that time to be, have any presence in Africa during the 90s and, and in Asia. You know, yeah. there was the Tour of Langkawi and a few things, but nothing where you could say well, mountain biking really is a sport that can be practiced anywhere at a high level. Yeah. And that was, I think, a good thing for the globalization of the sport. Yeah. But there was a bit of a gap. Uh, in the African side as far as success goes, right? Which is where Greg Minar starts to slot into the puzzle for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we, we were very early on with the World Cup taking it in the 90s to different locations. You know, we went to New Zealand. Obviously, the Worlds were in Cairns. We were in Australia in 94 with the mm -hmm. World Cup. Uh, South Africa, we started going in 97. So... In the 90s, when we had the budget and had the support from the title sponsor, we were able to go to some far-reaching places. And part of that is to expose those riders who live in those countries to top-level racing, see where they slot in. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, 97 was the first time I saw Greg racing. Um, and then in 98, that's when he was really starting to make a bit of a mark, you know. And, and I went to his dad and said, look, the UCI is turning 100 in two years' time. Never has there been a world champion from any country in Africa in any discipline in any age group for cycling. So 
there was, I think, a road champion in the 1890s, but that was before the UCI existed. Uh-huh. So we're talking about the rainbow jersey. Yeah. No African has worn that. And I think it'd be really cool for uh, the UCI to be able to say, we have a world champion in every continent by the time we turn 100. So went to the UCI president and said, look, there's this talented downhill kid in South Africa. Um, can we get a bit of a budget together to get him to Europe and see if we can get him to world champion at 99 in the world as a junior? So, you know, his, his dad was, uh, said, like, I need to talk to his school teacher. And, and Greg always said he had a, had a window seat at school. <laughs> so he was keen to get going. So, yeah, we, I think in 98 was when we, after the World Cup in Stellenbosch, we brought him to, to Europe. And my main goal really was to take him to French Cups so he could learn about mud and roots and rain and all that sort of stuff and yeah. things he wasn't used to. And he didn't do very well, if I'm honest. He, he really struggled with that at the beginning. And, and then we took him to a couple of World Cups where he failed to qualify. And, you know, it was a bit of an uphill battle. And, uh, and I don't think he really enjoyed his first long stays away from home. Yeah. I think he arrived with like two kilograms of biltong, like dried antelope <laughs> meat and things to remind him of South Africa. And of course, didn't have any language skill. And, and uh, so, yeah, it was, it was a tough time. And, uh, but eventually we started to see you know, some results coming through. You know, a sixth place in Big Bear, I think, was the first one we saw in the World Cup. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, that was all, you know... I think if Aura in Sweden had been dry, he would have had a better chance. You know, when people see Greg now, they see a really tall, quite powerful rider. But as a junior, his his nickname was Lighty. He was he's quite a skinny bugger, and he he didn't have the power in the mud. Yeah. And so Nathan Rennie beat him at the Worlds. I think he was fourth. And you know, we tried again in 2000 in Sierra Nevada and uh, different places. But you know, eventually he got there in 2003. So we were only a couple of years late. Yeah, all good work. And we'll yeah. talk a bit more about Greg later yeah. for sure. But let's um, let's shift over towards the team management side of things. And it was something that had obviously cropped up in your brain while you were at the UCI and was a direction you felt like you wanted to go in. I guess why was that? Do you think? And then how did you go about doing it? Because you were telling me some interesting. Uh, stuff about uh, dinners and various bits and bobs to try and work your way in that direction yeah well it was um i guess after about a year at uci when i was still having doubts about whether i should have moved to switzerland i was trying to find the unlock the little passion project within that role that would get me super motivated to keep pushing on and and I, I looked at these race teams, you know, the Volvo and Cannondale and, and Sun, and, and they had these big trucks, and how did they do it? My logistical brain was always saying, how do they move these trucks around? How do they get the sponsorship? Where do they get the tires from? Just trying to plug it all in and figure out how it worked. And I started to realize that as an ex-racer, probably my favorite thing to do would be to help develop races, bike riders, and, and a race team and become a team owner. So I thought, I'll, I'll try and... F- pick their brains, you know, and I'm not going to just walk into their tent on a race day and say, so tell me how you do this, you know. Um, where does the truck come from? Where do you store it? All that sort of stuff. I, I just wanted to find them in a, a more casual way. So I organized these Thursday night dinners with um, the team manager of Volvo Cannondale and the team manager of Giant. The three of us would get together and pick three guests each week that we would bring. It might be an official, might be an organizer, might be a rider, might be a, a course designer. And uh, we would find a, 
a great restaurant within 50k of the venue and we'd tee it all up and we'd go out for a Thursday night dinner and we'd just sit there and we'd talk shop but we'd do it in a more casual relaxed way and and that's when I started to learn a lot more about how these two guys who run these two big teams get the job done and it fascinated me and it really excited me I thought this is something I could really do I would really love to do that so that was the way we went about it. Some very expensive dinners. They're all on our own credit cards. We weren't charging them back to the UCI or anybody. We were yeah. doing that personally. But and I, I know I know one of the team managers got into a little bit of trouble because he, he from from family because he spent way too much money doing that. <laughs> but they were really valuable dinners because um, I remember Glenn Jacobs, who was the course designer for Four Cross, came to one in Italy, and and I think we had Mercedes Gonzalez, a rider there with him, and. Maybe Glenn, uh, Greg came with Glenn. But you got some rider perspectives. You got different perspectives of how the weekend's going, what went wrong last week. Mm -hmm. And as a technical delegate, it was really important for me to get these perspectives. And I think they, were, they dropped their guard a little bit more with me in that environment and were yeah. able to speak more freely and not feel that there was any problem talking to the UCI about how much of a shit job we were doing <laughs> or what we could improve. And, and, you know, I, I took it to heart because it, I'm the UCI. I'm the only mountain bike guy. So if you say we're doing a bad job, I need to fix it. Tell yeah. me what we've got to fix. And, you know, and uh, that's where the 80% rule comes from. The 80% rule in cross country was at a dinner and the TV producer guy was saying, we've got too many lap riders on TV in cross country. Can you fix that? Yeah. So I came up with this 80% rule where, you know, take the time of the first full lap. 80% of that is how much time you're allowed to be behind the leader. Once you fall behind that, you're off the track. Yeah. It's reduced a lot the number of lap riders. It used to get really confusing because they weren't being pulled out till the start-finish line. Now they get pulled out well before. So anyway, those sorts of things come up. And the hot seat also came up during one of those okay. dinners. You know, yeah. how, how can we – the leaders keep running out of the pits after the, uh, after the finish roll, after they've won, um, scored a good time, recorded a good time. So how can we keep them there? And so, you know, we just got a chair and <laughs> called it the hot seat. I think it was in Big Bear we started doing that. But so – but they're a less formal way just to, you know, share ideas and and not feel that you're being judged. And mm -hmm. I think that was a really good way to – and like I said, we kept rotating people every week, someone different to learn from. Yeah. So, yeah, I walked away from a lot of those dinners going, how can I start a team? What what can I do? How can I get this up and running? And when will I do it? And I think as Greg started to become more successful, I – this idea of a team with a rider from every continent to show that the sport was truly global was you know forming in my head maybe six months before we had our first meeting on it yeah so yeah that's that's that was the genesis really yeah and you pulled global racing which was that team that took that concept forward together in about 10 weeks is that right that's yeah yeah i mean fortunately like i said it had been in my head for a while <laughs> so i sort of knew the steps that, that needed to be taken but not until you get a contract mm. and the financing can you start putting together. Yeah. So after Greg got his first podium in Vail, we went to dinner to celebrate. And then I sat with him and said, look, i got this idea. We're going to Japan soon. I want to meet with um, Hideo Morita, who's the owner of the, mount on the mountain. He's the son of the founder of Sony. So a wealthy guy with a passion for the sport. Yeah. And go to him with the idea of global. And here's my idea. And I think we should get a, a couple of Japanese riders in there because I think Hideo would like that because that will represent Asia for us. And um, so I asked him, who do you think we should get? And he gave me a couple of rider names. And we, so we started gelling it and then went to Japan, asked for a meeting with Hideo, explained it all to him. 
And he said, I love it, you know, but you need to set up a sports ma uh, sports management company to run it. And I want to buy 51% of that company. <laughs> so that's part of the deal. Yeah. So it was like, whatever it takes, you know, I want to just get this going. And so did the Sydney Olympics. And that was a great job to be technical delegate in my home city mm -hmm. for the sport I love. It couldn't get any better than that. So wrote the resignation letter on the flight out. You know, I'm just going to make this work. And so that was, yeah, three months notice and then put it all together in 10 weeks. Yeah, signed nine athletes, eight staff, all the support sponsors who weren't cash sponsors, they were product suppliers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think we got 60-something frames from Orange from at the time when they were probably doing 1,000 frames a year. Wow. So, yeah, it was really... Yeah, it was amazing actually how how quickly that came together, mostly by fax. Yeah, you know we were using fax machines back then, not email. And yeah, so it was um, you know sending eighteen page contracts by fax back and forth. There was no such thing as scanners I, I, that I remember. You know, but that's how I remember it. My fax machine going off in my home at night at three in the morning, coming in from California or something. Yeah. So yeah, it was a very very. It was a baptism of fire. Yeah. That was a pretty unique funding approach, was it, at that point, to have that external investment rather than the brands themselves kind yes. of chipping in. Yeah, and of course, I didn't have a reputation as a team manager. I was some official guy. Mm -hmm. So to go to, to Michelin Tires and say, hey, I would like X thousand dollars for a team, I'm putting together, who are you? And what's this team? So yeah. I couldn't see myself starting any other way. I needed to have some sort of outside investment as someone who knew me and understood that I'd be good at what we were doing mm -hmm. but uh so hideo knew me through the relationship as the technical delegate for a couple of years at, at a world cup because this was through arai mountain yeah arai right? yeah. mountain yeah so we i think we raced there in 98 so i'd been there in 97 for a tech uh, site visit yeah. and got to know him really well and he was you know a, a t-shirt and shorts billionaire you know he was he was a man of the people he wasn't this big, unapproachable billionaire. He was very relaxed guy, uh -huh. and uh, loved mountain biking. Bought the mountain. Really wanted to make it into a Whistler of Japan yeah. at the time. So we got along really well, and um, and so it was a few years before you know. Yeah, it was three years before I came to him with the idea. It wasn't a, oh, you know, here's a guy I can get some money off straight away. No, yeah. I wanted to build the relationship and also really be sure that I had a solid idea in my head. That it wasn't just something fanciful that wasn't going to work. It really had to work, and um, so yeah, he, he that was mostly the funding was from him as part of his purchase agreement for my company, and also money from Arai Mountain as a separate budget. So the mountain had some money, and his company had some money. So it was two okay. two different funding sources. So Arai was the the I guess even our website was called Arai uh, AraiGlobal.com. Yeah. So it wasn't GlobalRacing.com. I think that was probably already taken, actually. But, yeah, it was AraiGlobal.com, and they had the naming rights as Arai. And um, and then we went back there, fortunately, to race in 2001 and uh, got two of our guys on the podium and Missy on the podium. So it was, yeah, it was good return. So, yeah, we had a – but the first year was very, very tough, you know. We didn't really know what we were doing. We thought yeah. we did, but we didn't. Was it hard to bring brands on then in that in that funding structure and with that lack of kind of – uh i guess performance background to say look i can do this um no well fortunately missy agreed to join the team that's a big part of it right yeah i mean 
you know, we all know Greg Menard now, but at the time he had one podium yeah. as a young guy. So, you know, that'd be like looking at Ronan, Ronan Dunn or someone mm -hmm. like now and saying, I'm building the world's biggest team off Ronan Dunn. As much as he probably has a huge future in front of him, you don't know that for sure at the time. And yeah. we didn't know that with Greg either. So, but Missy was a legend and she was looking for something new and she really loved our concept of doing outreach visits to schools to promote the sport and to do more than just ride bikes. Yeah. We had a lot of other programs built around the, around, the pro, around the race team. So she said, I really love the concept, I'm in. Um, and once she was in, then it was easy. And, and we had the budget to, to hire Missy. You know, we, we paid her very, very well. In fact, I think today she's still, you know, the highest paid female cycle, mountain biker ever. Uh -huh. You know, she was an icon in our sport. So we couldn't quite get to the Volvo Cannondale level of salary, but we, she was definitely the biggest ticket item on the team yeah. and thoroughly worth it because we were able to then go to people like Michelin and RockShox and different companies and say, we're not asking for money. We just need enough product for nine riders and one of them is Missy Gioi. And it's like, where do we sign? Okay. So, yeah. so that got us all the hardware we needed. And, uh, and, you know, I think, yeah, it was very different. When we first came out, no one really understood the name. What does global racing? Sounds very generic. And who's funding it? It's not the industry. You know, it was a little bit different for people to wrap their heads around. Yeah. But it definitely gave us a, a launching pad without the stress of having to report back to so many cash investors. Just the one, really. Yeah, yeah, that makes life a little bit easier. And it was, although, like you say, maybe a turbulent first season, um, finding your way through it, the success came very quickly. Yeah, flukily so. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, no, no full credit to the riders who got the results, but as a team, I mean, I remember our first um, excess baggage bill, you know, we did team camp in Australia and then flew to Sea Otter. And we had to ship everything on cargo because we had 60-odd frames and bikes and stuff. And it was like 11 grand or something for our first bill. And that was my annual budget for, for, for excess baggage. I'd done some calculation, but I had no experience. And suddenly our first bill wiped out that budget. And, uh, <laughs> and then, you know, just the simple things of like, okay, I had to pay for the hotel bill and Sea Otter, and it was $12,500 for all the people to stay there for a week. Sea Otter's not cheap. Yeah. And my credit card limits for five grand. So I'm sort of like juggling credit cards to try and pay with three different cards. And <laughs> then how do I replenish them in time for the next race? And had to really learn about cash flow. And, and uh, so, yeah, that's, that was all behind the scenes. The riders didn't know that stuff. You know, as far as they knew, their bikes were perfectly prepared by the mechanics. And, and, uh, and we went racing in a comfortable pit area. And, but behind the scenes, you know, I was really battling. I had the money, but it was just juggling it and moving it around and making sure the credit cards weren't in default and all that sort of stuff it was yeah and i was you know had just moved to spain so i was dealing with all of that dealing with a new country new language new accountant new everything so yeah it was really it was i had a team manager so i was like team owner and i had a team manager and he handled a lot of the logistical stuff of moving nine athletes and eight staff around it was a big program yeah it's a huge team yeah and we did it with a sprinter and a trailer i mean <laughs> i still don't know how we did all that how do we fit all the bike i do not know because we, we were doing four cross or dual at the time yeah and downhill and we had the cross country bikes on there for warm-up and um yeah so i learned a lot and once you once you go into your second year you've had all of winter to 
look at all the errors you made and how to rectify them and how to streamline it and improve it. And it's an, a constant process. You're always improving. Yeah. You took the overall with Greg that year. Mm -hmm. um, very unexpectedly, I think. Yeah. I mean, he came in with, uh, I think after the qualies, he had a seven point deficit to Nicola Vuglio. And he's a 19-year-old up against his idol, you know, a guy that he's been watching on the on the Grundigs on Eurosport for the last five years, and and uh, couldn't get more intimidating, I guess, for a kid. And and Missy, I th you know, we were up against Anne Caroline Chasson at the time, so Missy was sitting second. That was pretty well locked in. Uh -huh. um, so yeah, you know, he, he went to Montserrat in the finals. His mum and dad had flown in for it just in case he won. So he had the pressure of mum and dad being there. First year on a new team. Um, seven points from the league going up with the final run all you got to do is beat the greatest of all time you know <laughs> no stress as a 19 year old you can, you can do that I you know I think I offered to go up in the chairlift with him to see if you know I could calm him down or distract him or something he said no I really need to just zone in on this myself he had this one rock that he was jumping that I think I think Nathan Rennie broke his collarbone trying to copy him so he had this one line that where he's picking up some time and yeah, you know, it was pretty nerve-wracking being at the finish line, waiting for him to come down, knowing that winning the race wasn't the objective. It was just to finish one position ahead of Nico. That's yeah. all you had to do. And and he did. And Chris Kovarik won the race and, and uh, you know, he won the overall. I still can't – I mean, there's photos of it. I know it happened, but I don't remember it at all. Really. Interesting. Yeah, it's just – just a big fog, you know. Yeah. It, was, it was just – I remember hugging the parents, um, you know, Jackie and Jeff, and I – thanking the staff and there's photos of me with tears coming out of my eyes. I mean, it was a very emotional time that somehow we'd done this in the first year. And obviously, you know, the investors were very happy and the sponsors and so forth. And I think that set Orange off. You know, a lot of people hadn't heard of the Orange bikes outside of, you know, the UK and some parts of Europe at that time. You know, so it got a big US presence and mm -hmm. it helped that company. They obviously went on to sponsor Steve, Steve Pete for many years. So, yeah, it was a great, great time, you know, and uh, I'll hopefully one day feel that same thing again, you know. Yeah, and a friendship that, you know, has, has lived from then onwards. You and Greg have been have been close. You've been in business together. You've worked together. You know him very well. Mm. Any thoughts on, on Greg as an athlete and how he's done what he's done? Because it's unparalleled in the sport. Like, we've, we've seen maybe similar things in other sports, but no one in mountain biking has done what Greg's done. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, no, no one would have predicted this, you know, not until maybe a few years ago and people would say, yeah, he'll go on for another five or seven years. But there's no way, you know, this skinny kid you saw in Stellenbosch in 97, 98 would go on to be clearly the greatest of all time. I mean, there's always, okay, he's won how many world championships to Nicola Vuglio and mm. Nicola Vuglio retired early, all that sort of stuff. But it's not just that, it's how he carries himself as a sportsman, as an ambassador how he treats people. If you've ever had the pleasure to meet him, the first thing, you know, you go up and ask him, how was your race or whatever? He immediately says, fine, how was your day? He comes back straight away and wants to know more about you than to talk about himself. He's always been like that. Um, extremely humble. But when it comes to race day, you'll never find a more fierce, dedicated competitor. He loves a big crowd. He loves when there's a lot at stake, when the pressure's really high, that's when he rises to the top. And I think for some people, that's very intimidating. I think a lot of people are stressed in that environment and that may force them to retire early because it's very hard to maintain, 
you know, at the top level for a long time mm. without feeling a lot of stress. He doesn't seem to feel that stress, and I think that's helped him a lot mentally stay yeah. at the top. Um, I think he's extremely. He's always been extremely talented from jumping buses as a 13-year-old <laughs> on a YZ80 and uh, jumping cars, I mean, and he's always been talented on, a, on two wheels. So that's inherent, yeah. I think. The only thing that you're, you know, when you get to a certain age, maybe your reflexes shouldn't be as sharp as they were. Or maybe you start thinking about other things in life that do I really want a broken hip at my age? Do I really want to, you know, I've got a mortgage, I've got this, I've got responsibilities. doesn't seem to enter his head. You know, this is what he loves to do. I know he's not going to retire soon. Yeah. As, as long as he's in the charge for a podium and a win, why not? Yeah, you why know? not? And uh, we had a good chat in Andorra and um, he's so philosophical about where things are right now. He's enjoying it. He's not getting tired of the travel. He's got a great support team around him. And um, and I, I really appreciate that, you know, after 24 years of working together, we're still able to chat like it was, you know, day one. And so, yeah, I'm I'm indebted to that friendship. It's a very important one to me. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned something yesterday, which I thought was really, really interesting. Obviously, you've had um, a significant amount of success over the years, but you said, Ride, riders know how to win a race. I can help them win an overall. Mm -hmm. Tell me a bit about that and how that differs. What you know, the different approach between winning a race and then winning an overall, and how you think about it. Yeah, I think <clears throat> for a rider, they tend to take each race at a time. You often hear in post-race interviews, you know, look at where you are in the overall, and they say, "I'm taking one race at a time," and that's the way they have to think because it it clouds it clouds their vision when they're thinking about a single goal, a single focus on a weekend. So, yeah, they know how to win races. They're the talent. I'm not talented. I can't say, look, you should have you know, pulled up earlier there or you should have braked earlier. That's not my job. But what I can do is look at their strengths and weaknesses and their competition and strategize where they should be within the points overall at a certain point in time or where they shouldn't be too stressed about conceding a victory mm -hmm. to a rider who's stronger in that type of track or another type of track. And... So winning an overall or managing the damage or limiting losses, looking where you can pick up points, where you can lose points, don't fight for the win today. You don't need to win today. Yeah. You know, look at what happened to Amory in, in Monsen and the overall was totally within his hands. He just had to roll down the hill. Yeah. And I know there are a lot of riders saying, I don't want to win the overall that way. I want to win the overall with a victory. Well, that's great. But look at Thibaut de Prella. Look at these people who've lost World Cup overalls because they had that single race mentality rather than the overall strategy. Mm -hmm. And I know sometimes it's harder to get top 25 than it is to win when you know there's an overall at stake. But there's lots of cases where you can look at Sam Hill, you know, crashed out of a world championship win with a seven-second lead, where would he have changed if he knew from a pit board or something a little bit earlier that he was seven seconds up and he would have clinched the title or not? Yeah. You know, so you've got to know your rider. So I know with Aaron Gwynn, for example – he does not want to win an overall by getting a mediocre placing. He yeah. wants to win the overall with a podium or a win. Mm -hmm. That's his mentality, and I'm not going to try and change that. But if I know his mentality and I know where his strengths are, you can always provide advice on, you know, this race wasn't as critical for us as next, next week is. Yeah, yeah. So with Greg, we used to sit down, and, you know, his big, his big challenge at the time, you know, when I was working with him was Sam Hill. And Sam and Greg are very different bike riders. Yeah. And so you could look at it, Schleidwing, and say, do not sweat it that Sam beats you here because that's just going to happen. 
But Fort William is where you're going to get him back. And then we would just work out a strategy of where he needs to be in the points. And, you know, we won two overalls together uh, of the three that he's won by strategizing, really. Well, the first one, I granted, after Caprun, we changed our strategy. He won his first race and suddenly we we're in the hunt for it. Yeah. But once he was a more established rider on Honda, we were able to look at those strengths and weaknesses and where the Honda bike was better and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so it's a combo of bike and rider, yeah. okay. certainly when you've got something unique. Yeah, like and, and look, you see this in MotoGP too, you know, well, this is a Ducati track or this is a Honda track. or, And so, you know, as a team manager, that's your job to look at the season as a whole mm-hmm. and where, where we're going to be strong and where we're going to be challenged more and whereas a rider you need that they've got a very singular focus for week to week they don't go well i can slacken off here because you know you so you just sort of manage their expectations a bit yeah and try and so overalls for me are are the jewel on the crown they're the things as a team owner you really want to win while it's wonderful to win a race on a weekend it's it's much more special and in the history books to win an overall they're much harder to do and i think they're more valuable yeah, yeah, it's a rare, it's a rare thing. Comes yeah. around once a year. Yeah, so. you know, when you look at some of the stats, I mean, I haven't got them right in front of me, but of say the forty-five men that have won a World Cup downhill race, twenty-two of them have only won one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, so it's 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 hard to get that second one, and even harder to get the third. And once you get up to five, you're getting into pretty legendary status. So, so yeah, that's why enjoy the race win. But there are people who've won overalls with only one race win the whole season, mm-hmm. and so. That's when you have to start looking at how important is a podium place here, a seventh here, an eighth there, quali points, where are they going to be key? Yeah. So, yeah, that's what a manager will do. Yeah, interesting. And you, you mentioned Honda, and the Honda era is a real standout part of mountain bike history, which you were obviously at the head of. Um, so I definitely want to talk in some detail about that. First off, how did that opportunity arise? Because it's, it's unique. Yeah, uh, one of our global racing riders, Naoki Itagawa, was riding for Honda in Japan in 2003. So one of the engineers in the two-wheel department at Honda had been at Big Bear and hired an an intense bike, I think, and gone for a ride at Big Bear on a downhill bike and just loved it Mm -hmm. and just thought, you know, I I want to invent something. I want to create something like this but different. So in his own time, he went back to Japan and started working on his idea for a downhill bike and the head of two wheel, um, a man who's designed the gold wing, gold, all, all the MX range, a huge guy in Honda. Um, he saw him working on something on his computer and said, what's that? And he said, are you free next weekend? He <laughs> said, why? He said, I don't want to take you to Mount, uh, Mount Fuji or to Fuji, Fuji Panorama uh, and take you to a downhill track and we go ride downhill bikes. Yeah. So he took this 55-year-old guy for a ride. He was a, down, a skier in his day, so he was all right on a bike too. And he got to the bottom of the hill and he said, I want to build one like this for Honda. And he says, go for it. Just go do it. So he started working on it and came up with the RN01, which is the Race Nature 01, and started a little team in Japan. He took them to Montsenan to go racing, and we met up there. And I said to Naoki, they got any plans to go bigger with this he said i think so you should ask them to dinner so i said to greg he was writing for haro at the time let's let's take naoki and the team management out to dinner in monsonan and we had a dinner and it just came up you know would you like to start a a race team next year and they said (laughs) yeah let's do the world cup and actually the norba was a big focus for them yeah and um so we had to try and find a way to get Greg out of a, a multi-year contract with Haro. 
after he just won the world championship for them. Yeah. To go ride for Honda, and uh, so Greg was very excited about that opportunity, right? Yeah, the way we looked at it was he was already at the penthouse level at Haro, but uh-huh. he could get in on the ground floor at Honda, and who knows where it would go. Okay, and that was the argument we put to Jim Ford, who was the president of Haro at the time, saying, "If it was you or your son, what would you think?" Really, yeah, yeah. you know, you get this offer from the Honda Racing Corporation to start something brand new with a gearbox and. Or to continue doing what he's doing. He's won the world title for you. You can market that forever. What would you do? And he just came back and said, oh, I'd go to Honda. And I said, that's the position we're in. We know you don't have to let him go. Yeah. But if you did, it would mean a huge amount to him. And he did. He let it, he released him from his contract after a year, which was really impressive. Yeah. And that, But that's also part of having good relationships in the industry because if you're addicted to people, they're not going to give you a favor when you ask for one. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we actually got him on the bike pretty quickly and, um, and yeah, off we went from there. And what an amazing – I mean, it was very hard the first year for Greg because he had to sacrifice World Cup races to do Norbers, but it was the U.S. part of Honda that was helping to pay for all of this, so okay. they wanted the U.S. exposure. Um, but with the first race we, we entered, World Cup, we raced the Honda. It was Fort William, and he, I think he won by four or six seconds. <laughs> so it was, it was mental. Yeah, incredible. And and it must have been really interesting to have a completely outside perspective on how to run a, a sports team, a racing team, right? Because Honda have experience, but not in mountain biking and, yeah. and, and a very different culture as well. Japanese culture is completely different. Exactly. And the Honda Racing Corporation is a separate company, runs autonomously to Honda. Uh-huh. And, and they have their own race culture and their way of doing things. And I had to learn all that. So, because they were the team owner, we were hired as a management company to run uh-huh. it for them, but and to put together the vehicles and the athletes and the staff. But the team owner was HRC, and they came in with their protocol and their way of doing things. And I learned so much from that. I mean, you couldn't learn from a better teacher than HRC when it comes to racing. And we got to meet, you know, the Formula One guys, and we, you know, had some really good experiences there. And and a lot of the things I learned from Honda. I carried over onto the next team as far as, you know, logistics planning, organization, intra-team communications and how, you know, you manage parts. And and in that case, we had two setups. So we had our Honda truck, a border truck in the US and the European one, and everything was replicated. So we didn't have to travel with bikes. Uh, The only time we did was to Brazil. Uh But the rest of the time, everything was replicated. And so I've done that ever since, had a full setup, not travel with bikes. Yeah. So that when you get there, we have our US race bike or we have our EU race bike and they're built exactly the same. And we, the riders just carry their suspension. Yeah. So that, you know, really diminishes the risk of lost bikes. And so it's a little bit more expensive, but it's, I think, a better way to do it. And learned that from Honda. Yeah. And some of the process type stuff you do as well came from there? Yeah. Yeah. So um, mechanic report sheets um, on how, you know, the bike was performing, the conditions, log books that you would take from one year to the next. So you turn up months in hand, oh, these are tie pressures we ran last time and this is what we did last time. And so it gave you shortcuts to set up. And, and so, again, a Honda thing, they go from racetrack to racetrack. Now, obviously, our tracks change quite a lot compared to a motor racing track. Um, but you know, we were still learning from some of their motocross ideas as well. Yeah. So yeah, there was some crossover and people kept saying, well, why didn't they sell the bike? And it was never meant to be a commercial project. It was all about challenging their engineers to come up with something that would be different, 
but successful. Mm-hmm. Exercising the brains of their engineers is really what they call it. And that's why they, they make robots and business jets and things that they don't commercialize. They, they do it just to challenge their engineers. Yeah. And so it was always going to be a short-term project, but even when it ended, you know, it was only four years, uh, we we're all really bummed because we were enjoying it a lot. And, I bet. And the Japanese are great people to work with. They're, they work hard. They play much harder. <laughs> and and to see them on Belgian beers at the end of a bike race was always entertaining. <laughs> I can't even imagine <laughs> the chaos. How So how different was the level of engineering capacity, capability, techniques, tools compared to what you'd experienced pre- prior to that? Well, it was the first time I'd experienced telemetry, okay. and it was really incredible telemetry. Like there were frame flex and all sorts of things on different parts of the track, and they would put it up on a screen in a 3D format so you could actually see how it was moving down the track. And um, and they built a four-cross bike just for Greg. It was it was something that wasn't in the original contract, so that went through a lot of telemetry, and we're in Japan to get that up and running. Um, I've got some crazy photos of like just the amount of telemetry. I mean, it was it wasn't just a sensor here or there. There were little screens and boxes, and I don't know what it all did, but it was pretty <laughs> impressive. Um, and then t- also, all the parts had barcodes, so if we needed a new part, like they they made the hubs for us too. We we they had Honda hubs, so if we need a new hub, it had a barcode in a book, and the mechanics scanned that and sent that to Japan, and we'd have it within three days, and all that sort of stuff. So. We always had enough to build a complete bike from spare parts mm-hmm. because we had a frame stolen in Willingen, Germany, uh, without the gearbox. The gearbox were always in the mechanics rooms at night. Wow. And so they were never stored together. Yeah. Um, and normally the bikes were never in a van or anything, but in Willingen there was no possibility. The, the hotel wouldn't allow the bikes in the rooms mm-hmm. and so on and so on. So we, we parked the van behind another van up against the wall. We did everything could, but... Uh, they got into the van and they got a frame and so we had to build Greg a brand new frame from parts, build, put the gearbox in and then he went and won the race for us, which <laughs> was a nice payback to Honda after losing one of their frames. So I think that, you know, people always ask me, aren't there some stolen bikes out there? There was one that was stolen before the team started. So I think in the 2003 phase, there was one at the Frankfurt Motor Show uh-huh. on the Honda car stand and that got stolen from the show. Yeah. And then there's the one frame, you know, that we had stolen, but we never lost a gearbox. So what I'm told is in Eastern Europe, there are Honda collectionistas who we end up not wanting to use our van with a Honda logo on it because we would get stopped by people wanting to see what was in the van, thinking it was a motocross bike or whatever. So, yeah, there there are people get paid almost like poachers to go and find these things for the collectionistas who want the, the, the latest Honda thing. So hanging on a wall somewhere in Eastern Europe, I think, is a Honda. Because that same weekend in Willingen, a hundred other bikes were stolen. So it wasn't just ours. And they stopped two trucks heading towards Slovakia that had the hundred bikes in it, but not our Honda. So it was a separate Uh, thief. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, everyone else got their bikes back but us. That's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. That was a black mark in our history, but, you know, hopefully we paid them back with some race wins and... Yeah, it went all right, didn't it? Yeah, it did go pretty good. I mean, uh, you know, Matty had his wins as well. It wasn't just Greg. Yeah. And um, and I look back on, you know, the the rain game we played in Champery was a smart game and, and it won us the race. And, uh, you know, I know that Matty even at the time said, yeah, but I didn't really win. Sam really won that race. It's like, but in the history books, mate, in, in the future, it'll show that we knew how to, you know, the rain was falling at four o'clock every day, five yeah. to four, five past four every day. 
And we weren't the only ones who played the game. Steve Pete did too, and I think Fabian Burrell. There were a few writers that Matty beat in the dry. Yeah. But yeah, you sort of had to figure out where does Matty need to start in order to be on the track before the rain or as the rain hits. And uh, so we stopped him for 20 seconds in quali, and uh, he started as the rain just started. So yeah, it worked out well, but you know, for Honda, that was a win. They yeah. didn't care if it was a, you know, a rainy race or whatever. It was, wins a win. The statistics don't tell you what the conditions were, right? You're there to so, win the race, yeah. Yeah, for But sure. straight after that, I introduced a rule to try and stop that from happening again because I don't think it's fair that teams that have two strong riders or three strong riders can put them where they want in the start grid. So yeah. that's now why we have, most of the time, the top riders, even if they have a, a mechanical, are starting at the starting, end of the... Yeah, towards yeah. the end of the running. Yeah, so yeah. That's, that's mainly for that. <laughs> was there was there stuff that was being measured and analysed and things that you think still brands and teams haven't caught up with? Like, or do you think we're now at a level where the engineering has caught up with what Honda were doing back in the kind of what early two thousands? Well, there aren't any gearboxes on the podium, so you know, I, I, I wrongly predicted that it was going to be the next big thing, uh-huh. but what I didn't take into account is how much the manufacturers of rear derailers like selling rear derailers. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so I think if one of the big two or three one day says, we're going to start making gearboxes instead of derailers, then the others will probably follow. I don't know. It's okay. definitely the most vulnerable part and most vulnerable expensive part on a bike. Mm-hmm. Um, and in racing terms, the last thing you want is to you know hit your mech on a rock or or get clogged up with mud in the derailleur and when you cut that all encased in a, in a box free from all of that, yeah, it makes perfect sense to me And uh, as a race team manager, but not as a bike manufacturer or an OEM supplier. Yeah. Maybe it doesn't, but if SRAM were to come out with a lightweight integrated gearbox that works on a s- several frames, Shimano would be doing it straight away. I'm sure both of them have patents in there for them. I've, I've read that somewhere. So yeah, yeah. It will come, but right now, I think you know selling derailleurs is a good business yeah. for some people. Yeah, you know, not so great for the customer. Hmm. What was the media attention like then with Honda? Because it was a completely unique thing, and I'm guessing that uh, brought more media to your door every weekend. Yeah, I mean, it, we, we were prohibited from telling anyone what was inside the gearbox. Everyone had to sign NDAs. All the staff, the poor mechanics. You know, I had to fight for them in the end because they were having to clean the gearboxes inside inside the van away from where people would see them open and of course they're closed in a van with power brake with 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 um degreaser and all sorts of sprays and yeah so i said look they've got to be able to work in their own area so we did change that but the doors were always closed to the tents when we did anything like that no one would come in media or anybody was allowed in for the first year so that sort of secrecy and and honda being the name it is created a huge amount of interest and speculation and in any vacuum of information, there's always you know going to be all sorts of theories and conspiracies about what was in the box. Yeah, and then ultimately, when you do share the contents, because you know Honda says we could now the patents are all done, yeah, we can yeah. do it. Um, everyone says, "Oh, it's only a derailleur and a couple of things." <laughs> what, what did you think? A nuclear powered? What, I mean, what did you think would be in there? We had to. I think there was one point in the first year we had to open the gearbox to a UCI. Technical Commission commissaire okay. to prove that it was a man man powered bike, yeah. that there was no engine, and so we did that. So he was the only person outside of the NDAs that could see it. Yeah, 
but he didn't take photos. He just came and inspected it randomly. He didn't have a meeting in advance. He just sort of walked in. I'm from the UCI Technical Commission and I yeah. need to see inside the box. That's fine. Um, and there's never been any question like, is this going to be made available to the public? Is this a prototype? It was just get on and go racing. Mountain biking has always been considered by the UCI, something I, I really value, as as an experimental area for product development. Yeah. And it's not as controlled as it is in road cycling or track cycling. It's always been allowed to. Mm-hmm. So I, we had free reign and we're happy to have it inspected. And But, yeah, I think that's what's missing. I, I would love to see – you know, I know there are some out there, but I would love to see – someone on the podium that's ridden a gearbox bike to the line yeah yeah it would be good to see do you do you think the the gearbox thing was more kind of a marketing ploy to to create hype and to create suspicion and people wondering and talking or do you think they were really actually very protective of that engineering at that stage the engineering department at Honda has no marketing department. Yeah, okay. The engineers are engineers. Yeah, there's nothing. No, there's, I think it'd be great if you did that. That'd be great for media speculation. No, it was purely they wanted to move the center of the uh, gravity or the weight of the bike more to the center yeah. to make it – and they wanted uh, a system for allowed you to change gears without having to pedal. Mm-hmm. So you're going through a rock garden, you want to preload a gear, you could do that without pedaling the bike through the rock garden. Yeah. All those sorts of things. And they also had a, um, a lockout for the shower – rear shock so out of the start hut you had a rigid bike mm-hmm. and that lasted for nine seconds that was, oh, that all. was an automatic thing yeah right? so it turned off out of nine. Yeah. And, and matty got to use it you know he would use it on uh, on the motorway in fort william greg said he'd always forget to you mm-hmm. know like he was f- so focused on other things whereas matty would experiment where he could use it knowing you had it for nine seconds yeah you obviously didn't want it to go on you know three seconds before a rock garden so you had to plan that out but it was these were all innovations coming from the engineering department and they were things that were purely about performance nothing mm-hmm. else i mean the the color of the bike the bike being like a polished alloy might have been to draw attention but uh, everything else was purely about performance yeah crazy times remember remember the front mudguard which was a permanent thing that was for look but it was carbon fiber for, for performance and we were breaking those things all the time and they end up having to go to plastic because it was you know 500 euros a time every time we break a mudguard so yeah so but that was purely driven why would you put a full-time carbon mudguard on it unless it was for performance you know it's if there's rain it's already there and it's lightweight you don't even notice it's there and and i think the riders got quite used to the vision they had with the the mudguard and the tire looking straight ahead you know? yeah so yeah i i never got the feeling that there was any i never met anyone from marketing department of honda you yeah. never heard from anyone from marketing department. It was all HRC, all race, all performance. Incredible. Mm. And you, um, you did some some smart marketing stuff. Well, throughout all of your teams, but but one of the ones that stands out was there, and it's something that's become more and more common in in the modern world. But you did a specific kind of bike and kit, but you actually limited it to just one run. One run, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the black and chrome one run in Fort William. So Greg had wrapped up the overall in Angel Fire with two races to go and um in new mexico so we're just trying to think what can we do at the finals in fort william to draw attention you know that's not just well you know he's already won the overall let's see who comes second in the overall let's try and do something with it and um with the bike being chrome and most of it being black i think it was really just the shower stickers and maybe the coil on the shower which weren't we thought why don't we just do a full black and chrome bike but before we do that let's see if we can get alpine stars to make a black and chrome kit because we hadn't seen chrome printing yet anywhere and they said yeah we've just developed it you know we're ready to to do it so they made this black and chrome kit 
Greg got his helmet, black and chrome, black goggles, everything. The only thing that wasn't were his rainbow stripes on his sleeve. And uh, we told the press, look, we're only just doing it for the one run. So after qualifying, we had to bring the bike in, change the decals, do all the different <laughs> stuff, get the different parts on, different pedals. Maybe there was a, a, an SDG seat we had to change as well. And then Greg had this kit, so he got one shot at it, photographers. He's going to just do the one run. And uh, so, yeah, just I think making it that one run only also made it more special and yeah. put pressure on the media to get the shot. And uh, and then suddenly someone who'd won the overall two weeks ago had all the attention back on him again. So it was a it was a good way to celebrate it. That was the real genesis of how do we celebrate this is an important win for Honda and market in some way. And now, of course, you see world champ spikes and different custom jobs, which weren't the norm back in two thousand five. You know yeah. that was that was quite different. It's kind of table stakes now, right? You yeah. almost need to be doing different kits every week or every couple of weeks and new bikes and yeah. And I, I'm to be honest, I'm not as an old school fan. I'm not a huge fan of that. I like I like team kits to remain the same all year, just like football kits or any other kits stay the same all year. Yeah, that's what my team colours are. That's if I'm a fan. How do I support that team buying that jersey? Because next week they're wearing a different one. So yeah, I've always liked that. Team riders wear the same kit. I know it's different in motocross where people on the same team can look completely different, mm -hmm. NASCAR and stuff. But for me, when someone jumps the fence to celebrate a guy's victory, I want him to be in the same kit. I want it to look like a team. That's my personal opinion. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's yeah. just how I how I see a team looking. And I, th I think we're seeing a bit more of that. You know, you see Syndicate now is more uniform in their look, whereas before the riders were allowed to get their own contracts and do their own look. Yeah as long as logo placement was uniform. Um, I know Mondraker have moved back and forth on that as well. Uh, 100%, you know, they're, they're changing the kits every week almost with the riders. Yeah. And I think that's great for their product promotion. But yeah. as a fan, yeah, I I wanted it to be really special. We were in the same kit all year, but this one run, Greg was in black and chrome. Yeah, and, and it worked, right? It stood out. Yeah, it really did. And I'm lucky to have that one kit here in the museum, in the Honda Museum. Yeah, here. very cool, very cool. So... Incredible opportunity, like only one group of people ever got that opportunity. We've never seen anything like it since. It must have been quite a come down when Honda said, right, okay, this is enough for this project now. Like that must have been quite hard to deal with. Yeah, but as I said, at the beginning, we knew it wasn't indefinite. It wasn't a team that was going to go for 15 years. We knew, in fact, I thought it would probably only go for three. Uh -huh. um, and the fact they allowed us to go to a three-rider you know, three rider team in the last year, because that was a big expense for them. So, yeah, I think they they fell in love with it too, but in order for it to be a short-term project, it had to be short-term, <laughs> yeah. you know, so they couldn't have broken the mold and suddenly say, we do this, we're going to go racing full-time. That's not who we are. We don't sell bikes. Um, we're not, you know, they will sell the paint. Anyone who wants to buy the gearbox paint, it's for sale. They can, uh -huh. you can buy that and you can put it on your, on your, your trek or your Rocky Mountain or whatever bike you want to as a manufacturer, but that's... That's the only thing there. So we, you sort of knew it was coming. It's, um, but even though you know it's coming, the day it comes, it's 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 bittersweet because, um, but I I took the year off to stop and think about what I wanted to do next after that. And, you know, this is only my second team. Mm -hmm. I I needed to think about something new, and I I don't like the idea of just the same old thing. Just change the logos. I wanted to come up with something new. And so that's where you know Trek World Racing came from. That was I, during 2008. I was um, sorry, not 2000. Yeah, it was 2008. Yeah, 
2008, I did some odd jobs. I, I actually was team manager for Yeti for a few races to help train up their guy who's still there now, Damien. Damien, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it was to help him teach him some of the things I'd learned from Honda and other things. So, and Chris Con Chris Conroy, Yeti's a good friend, and he yeah. asked me if I would, or I might have asked him, I don't know, I was looking for something to do. And yeah. And was lucky to be team manager for when Blinky won in Schlodming. And so I was there with Justin Leo and Aaron Gwynn, who I met for the first time there in that role. Uh, okay, yeah. So, so I was in that role there and I think also in Andorra, maybe another race. And then I was also team manager for the Spanish downhill team for and the Four Cross team at the Worlds in Valdesoli. Uh -huh. And we won our first gold with uh, Four Cross. So it was an interesting year, but I knew I wanted to get back to running my own team. Yeah. Uh, like global, so being team owner again, not not working for another company, but uh -huh. starting from scratch. And and I during two thousand and eight, I introduced the Trek bosses to Honda to have the first look at the gearbox to see if they'd be interested in purchasing the rights. Yeah. So that was in Monterey and Sea Otter. So met with Trek there and realized that they had the product to do a full cross country downhill team. They were ready for that level of racing, and I thought. That's my dream. You know, Volvo Cannondale was cross-country and downhill. Yeah. I would love to do a dual-discipline team, and that's where we started, you know, TWR, and that was seven years. Yeah, and the first time you've been with, like, a really big brand, I, I guess. I mean, Honda, a big brand, but not within the bike industry. Correct. So I'm guessing big budgets, big spend. The athlete roster was incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we – what was it – um Three downhill, three cross country was where we started. So six riders. And um, of course, now Matthias Flukig is very well known in cross country, but at the time he was unknown. Mm -hmm. And we had his older brother who was more known. So we had the two Flukigers. And we started with Liam Colleen from the UK, who I was managing at the time. And he was the UK's bright hope in cross country. And in downhill, Tracy Mosley, of course, uh, a legend in, in our sport. And I brought in Justin Leo from Yeti. Yeah. And. Um, and Andrew Neithling, who'd ridden for me on global racing and who I respect a lot. And again, we were getting quite a good global mix there, Africa, New Zealand, you know, UK, Europe. So it was a good mix of athletes. And uh, But you can't start a team like that with real big hitters. You can't, you know, just start off and just say, right, I'll go to the number one rider in the world and get him. Because you need the reputation on, the, on that product. Yeah, so yeah. Trek hadn't really raced at World Cup level in downhill for sure. And cross country, I think we had more of a chance, but we were still, you know, I was new to cross country team management too. So it was almost like starting with global there. Uh -huh. Did the cross country fraternity see me as a, a real team manager? Yeah. Or was this just a side project to the downhill team I was running? So... You know, I think with with Matthias being a junior world champion in Rotorua, we knew he was he was on the up and up. And they're they're the riders I really like working with. You know, I like to develop a rider over time rather than cherry cherry picking champions. I think it's a lot yeah. more rewarding for both parties that you grow together. So, yeah, we started off, and um, of course, straight away Tracy had success and uh, won the first race, and and then Justin got podiums, and Andrew Needling got his first World Cup podium with us in Valdesoli, and and then Matthias and Lucas started getting on the podium all the time, and then we brought in Emily Batty, and uh, who wasn't as well known then as mm -hmm. she is now, and grew the team over time. And Tracy and Aaron, their time together was was amazing. You know, the, for two years they just dominated. Yes, I mean, yeah, I mean, incredible success on that team, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean. 78 world cup podiums or something crazy so yeah it was a really really rewarding time and i and i you know especially during aaron's tenure with the team i think 
there's some moments there for the staff being getting to see your staff get on the podium and be celebrated as the number one team of the weekend is is very special for me because the mechanics are very uh, very often forgotten when it comes to the celebrations at the end of the race but they're the key to it you know yeah so to get them to get up on the podium and see them celebrate with their riders is always a great feeling we did that probably six or seven times during that two years or maybe more uh won the team trophy and yeah as a team owner to see your whole team celebrating and being unified in victory is, is a great great feeling yeah and what's the difference then between kind of downhill and xc from a from a management perspective is one more logistically challenging than the other or well the first thing i learned was that I, you know downhill bikes i thought were far more uh, mechanical had a lot more work that needed to be done between runs or after practice sessions but it's not true the cross-country bikes are just as technical okay and the mechanics worked on them just longer hours as the downhill bikes and sometimes even more so they would strip them right down right down to the bearings and go again and so that's something i had to learn straight away that was i had to allow for my cross-country mechanics the same working hours as the downhill strategy is very very important in cross-country yeah. and um and you know looking after your athletes in recovery they have a uh, they have a they're you know they're exerting themselves you know i this, i sometimes wonder how the cross-country riders are able to do as many races as they are because when you look at marathon running marathon runners will only do one or two or three races a year yeah so it is very strenuous and um but I really loved, we actually did a challenge where we got the cross-country riders to race our downhill bikes and the downhills to race the cross-country bikes <laughs> and do relays and to and just to mix with the fact that we're a dual discipline. To see Emily Batty in full body arm and a full face helmet racing the downhill bike, she got to the end and said, why hasn't anyone let me do this before? This is amazing. I love okay. it. You know, and then, so it was all like Tracy and Emily would do their own run and then you, they would swap bikes and then we'd calculate a percentage of each other's discipline yeah. time back yeah. to see who got the closest. And so it was a bit of a challenge we did. So we loved mixing it up and the athletes shared a lot of ideas and training ideas, warm-up ideas. And so there was a lot of crossover that mm -hmm. way. But as a, as a team manager, it, race day for cross-country is a longer day. It's uh, feed zones and tech zones and, and giving the riders information each lap and – yeah, I, I I love cross country. I mean, I've I, you know, I used to race it, and I, and it was just a joy to be able to be getting podiums in in the world championships in 2012 in Saalfeld and Liegang. We were the number one team. We scored more medals. You know, we got three medals: a gold, silver, and a bronze. Yeah, so it was really really rewarding. And so, yeah, so I'm 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 a cross country fan. Yeah, well, it's a good it's a good part of the sport. It's a yeah. lot of fun. Um, yeah, and you you mentioned kind of unity. I guess was a word that stood out when you talked about team overalls and stuff. Do you feel like, um, from a team culture perspective and the environment within the team, do you feel like there's a Martin Whiteley recipe, i.e. the culture within all your teams has been quite similar or do you feel like it's, it's a, an organic mix of the people that you've put together and how much do you, think about that selection and what you're trying to create there does that make sense it's a good question it's definitely not that um theorized beforehand i uh -huh. don't sit down and say okay what is my formula for this team yeah you generally you're carrying over staff from one team to the next because you like working with them and they're great at their job yeah and and so there's some continuity um for example carrying over ben arnott 
as my head mechanic from Trek into the YT mob or Paul Schlitz who's been with me from Honda three teams. Yeah. That core is already there. And Paul and I and Ben or whatever are known within the paddock. So a rider will know what they're walking into. Mm -hmm. And there'll be some rider who say, they're probably a little too structured for me. I think I'd prefer to be with Bernard Kerr. Okay. And that's fine because Bernard Kerr runs a successful program on a different formula. Yeah. And another rider might say, no, I need more structure than that. You know, I think Martin be the right fit. Yeah. So the people that come to me are usually aware of the kind of programs we we run. And therefore, there's no shock. There's no buyer's remorse. They sort of come in and say, this is exactly what it said on the label. Yeah. And it's delivering what I need. And, um, you know, and, and I've had Brooke on teams and not had Brooke on teams. And, and he's fluctuated between a bit more structure, a bit less structure. He's gone from teams that had zero structure to ones that, you know, were there for him at the airport to pick him up and yeah. everything structured. And, and he's now sort of coming back around, you know. So riders evolve too in what they like in teams. Yeah. So for me, the only way to be a professional race team is to be professional. And that means the moment you get to the airport and check in for the flight, the moment you cross the finish line, it has to be seamless. There mustn't be any lumps and bumps where you go, damn, where's this? Or why isn't my laundry back? Or what happened? where's my warm-up bike? Or It's all got to flow. Mm-hmm. And so that they don't exert any energy on stress outside of their race run and their race environment. So that seamless experience is what we try to provide. And like I've said before, even the first year of Global, while stuff was going on, you shelter your riders from stuff going on so they can just get on with their job. Pay your riders on time, give them what they need to get the job done. Yeah. A happy rider is a fast rider, end of story. Yeah. So there are riders that I know that are out there that I just look at and go, they would not work with us. They, that's, they, I see the environment that they thrive under and we, we can't provide that. Yeah. Um, I can't be someone I'm not. I, I, I'm a logistics guy, a management guy. I run a structured program. And, um, and I think more and more of the programs are like that now. Mm-hmm. I think back in the day, you know, you could get pissed the night before qualifying and still qualify. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that was a different world back then. And, and certainly we were holding as many parties as anybody in the global pits. So that was – I think Honda sort of changed our mentality a little bit there that mm-hmm. right through race week you can – you have to be serious. And then as soon as the finish flag, finish flag comes down, then you can party. But yeah, but yeah. So I think, um, and then I, I do remember the first year of TWR. I was asked to just chill out a bit because I was okay. bringing too much of the Honda Japanese regiment into the Trek program. Yeah. So you know, the guys that I trust within Trek pulled pull me aside and just said, "Just chill it a bit," you know, because it's feeling a bit too structured. Okay. So you got to take that criticism on board and go right. Okay, we need to do Sunday night barbecues. We need to do something else. Let's go go kart racing. Let's do other stuff and yeah. not be so focused on results, results, results. Which was what you know. So you have to be adapting to the environment and see where there are issues. If there's someone that's feeling down or a bit negative, find out what the root cause of that is, and if you're the root cause of it, fix it. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you've got to be pretty comfortable with being vulnerable in that team environment, right? Everyone needs to feel like they can express issues and yeah. bring up problems with anyone at whatever level within the team, which is not an easy, you know, environment to create. No, it's not. And 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 some people are, are definitely more able to do that than others. I definitely have have had riders who wear their heart on their sleeve and they want to sit down and, and tell it how it is mm-hmm. and and that's great. And then the others, you really got to go digging for it to find out what is the issue. And 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 sometimes the issues are totally out of your control. They might be family issues back home. They might be things that you can't fix, but you can try and give them an environment that 
helps them be a bit distracted from it or yeah. do something to help them in some regard. But yeah, look, you, you are an amateur sports psychologist most of the time mm-hmm. dealing with the athletes. And I've dealt with so many different types from, from you know, absolute champions to those that are really struggling. I mean, I remember Angel in Leo Gang first year saying to me, I can't do this sport. This, this, is not, this is not for me. I am not good enough. I will never be good at this. Wow. And wanting to pretty much throw it in. And he's on a team with the greatest rider in the world at the time. Yeah. So, of course, you've got to go to him and say, you're comparing yourself to your teammate when you need to think about your own plan forward, where you want to go. Yeah. And you're not on this team by accident. We see it in you. But, you, you know, everyone around you has the faith, but you don't. And we need to help you get that faith. Yeah. And... um that was a long road to where we see him now, mm-hmm. but you have to sort of. And whereas Aaron Gwynn would never have that conversation because he's already grounded and he knows what he wants to do. Yeah. Whereas others are still finding their feet, and so you have to adapt to every rider in their situation. Yeah. And Trek World Racing was the first time you kind of worked for an extended period of time, I guess, with with Aaron. Like you said, you met through the Yeti mm-hmm. thing, but that was a short term mm-hmm. piece, and that relationship started to build. And when Trek world racing kind of was no longer a thing then was it aaron that kind of started this conversation with yt and then brought you in like how did the yt mob thing come together because it was a different set a bit of a different setup yet again and a slightly different dynamic to what you've done in the past yeah i mean i would i was happy to do another three years with trek and had put in a bid to do that um but they you know once you've once you've had that once you've had that sugar rush with with Tracy and Aaron winning every weekend, and then it doesn't happen for a little yeah, while, yeah, you want it back, and that's where Trek were at. They were so addicted to that sugar rush that they got with those two doing so well, and then after Tracy had retired from downhill and, and Aaron had moved on to specialised, you know, my plan was to bring in some young guns to grow them up. Uh-huh. So you you can't just cherry pick. I don't think it's a successful formula. So. We brought in Laurie Greenland and we had, you know, Greg Williamson. We had um, Brooke McDonald, of course, mm-hmm. and Nico and George Brannigan. So guys that I was seeing would grow over time and um, I, the patience wasn't there. Uh-huh. So they saw the Athertons with G and Rachel replicating the Aaron and Tracy and so off they went. So that was told to me pretty much the same week as the last week as, as the world championships in andorra so okay that late. was very late yeah. and um coincidentally that week there was a huge windstorm and the awning of the trek world racing truck just blew over the top of it so i was like well that's a sign we're definitely not <laughs> going to sign with trek and um and then aaron asked to see me in at the hotel and he came in and said look i've had some meetings and uh, with a with a company i can't tell you who it is but um I really like their bike. I really think it's the right bike for me. And um, I'd be really happy if you'd join me and we'd put a team together. And I did say to him, I remember saying, like, I'm, I really only want to do this if you're really sure that you're going to be successful from the get-go. Like, yeah. we're not going to go through a year or two of development and struggles and you're really sure. And he says, I'm, I'm positive. I really think this is the way to go for me. So I said, well, your word's as good as any. So we... We went away from that event and at least I had some idea that maybe something would come together for the next year, but I wasn't counting on it. You never know. And uh, then Aaron came back and then gave me some more details and then we 
met with uh, with um, Marcus and Stefan in Germany and started to feel like, yeah, this is, you know, he's really confident about this bike. Mm-hmm. He's got some partners and sponsors he wants to bring in that when I said to Ben, my head mechanic, what do you think about, you know, E13 and Onza and TRP? And he was like, how's this going to work? Like, <laughs> that's not a traditional makeup of, you know, brands that we're used to working with and winning with. Yeah. I said, well, no, Aaron's been working with them and he he feels very comfortable that they, they're going to deliver. Maybe some of them not immediately, but let's see how it goes. And, um, you know, the history repeat, you know, the history is there, you know, first race, first place. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, couldn't, couldn't get better no, really. No, we were lucky. I mean, lucky in a way that Loic fell. I think a podium would have been a win for us. Yeah. You know, so so to come up with a brand new team and with some unproven product at the highest level for us and yeah you know and to have the owners there for their first world cup and to see that you know it was a, it was a, an amazing day and and full credit to Aaron i mean he he could see it you know even when experienced people like me weren't so sure he could really clearly see it that that was possible yeah and um and so I think it was it was amazing that it, it was literally a bike out of a box that we you know with a couple of components that we changed, but you could literally buy that bike the next day. So I think it was a great success for everybody. I think it's the first time, apart from you say the very first year of World Cup racing, that a brand's come into the sport for their first race and won it. You know, yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah, pretty perfect. And you mm-hmm. have that you have that exact bike here as well. Yeah, have that bike here. We went on to win the overall in Andorra, and um, and another bike that I love is the is the Monsanan winning in the rain bike so we have that here too as soon as that bike got to the truck it's like pack that up that's going to europe that's a very special bike so yeah very very proud of some of the bikes we have here yeah and uh how long did you do the yt mob stuff for it's a good few years right yeah that was uh another seven years i think uh-huh. let's see 16 17 18 19 20 21 no six years yeah yeah and part of that that story was the um I guess the talent search. You guys mm. went out on a on a global talent search. You went to all the continents, spent time there, got riders from the local, not the local area, but that region of the world. Region of the world yeah. to come together. I guess. Well, talk us a little bit through how you personally view talent. Like, what do you look for? Because there's a lot of riders that you've had at a young age that have gone on to do big things either under you or, or mm. latterly in their careers. What do you look for? What do you think is part of that recipe? And, and does it, I mean, I'm sure it does to some extent differ from athlete to athlete. Yeah, it's, 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 like, um, it's like a bolognese sauce, right? <laughs> you know the ingredients, but the exact amounts of each ingredient, that's up to how I feel on the day and, uh-huh. and how I see it on the day. It's not like baking a cake where if you're out by a few grams, it's going to flop. You know, it's an, in, it's an imperfect science. It's a gut instinct. It's it's something I can't quantify. Mm-hmm. I think if someone could quantify that, everyone would be doing it. It's yeah. not that easy. Laurent Delon does a really good job of it as well. Mm-hmm. There are some people who can – it's just like when I saw Greg in 98, 97 I was, I was curious. Okay. 98 I was sure. Yeah. But he hadn't really done anything. He finished 38th in a World Cup, but I, I was sure. And I don't – I can't tell you how I was sure, okay. but I was just – there was a gut instinct that told me this was this was an important bike rider. And this wasn't just from watching him ride, I'm guessing. This no, was from it, knowing him as a kid, talking to him, spending time with the family. Exactly. The the parental aspect is very key. Yeah. 
and I think I've told you as well what order they were born in their family, whether they were the youngest born, an only child or a firstborn. Yeah. That for me has most of the time proved correct. Yeah, tell us that theory because I've never heard anyone say this before. Yeah, normally a firstborn in the family has more leadership skills. They're often the parents will say, take care of your brother and sister. I'm going, we're going out for dinner. They're put into these leadership roles very young at a very young age and they – they adapt to it. They have this sort of, I'm the first to get to this age. I'm ahead of you. I'm leading you. Mm -hmm. And they end up finding themselves in leadership and management roles. And that's how I found myself in that role. And I found a lot of people in that role. Whereas I found nearly every writer on my downhill teams has either been the youngest born or an only child, where they have a lot more freedom to do what they want. They have much less structure, less care about what might happen tomorrow. Let's mm -hmm. just go for it. Um, and Greg was a youngest born, has two older sisters, and and I that was just a factor, not the factor. But like I say, it's one of the ingredients. It might be one of the herbs I put in the bolognese sauce, but it's not the key thing. I go, oh well, if you're middle child, I'm not interested yeah. in in hiring you. It's not that at all. Um, Greg Williamson is a classic example of a uh, firstborn. But his younger sister is really his older sister. If you meet okay. the two and see the dynamic, you can see which sibling runs the family there. You <laughs> yeah. know, so it can sometimes just be a personality trait that um, that I, I latch onto. That I think, yeah, that's there's a champion mentality there. There's a driven mentality. So yeah, but it's it's in in the case of the writers that we chose. You know, we we had 510 applicants worldwide. Every camp, we we'd whittle down to like twenty or thirty applicants, and uh, not normally twenty. I mm -hmm. think Fort William we did a bit more, and then we would do timed runs. We do chainless runs. We would do um, go karting or something else, not just about bike riding, to see their character and meet the parents. And then we got down to the ten finalists. You know, the parents were also invited here to Spain to to be part of the project and. Because I think as a junior, they're very, they have very different paths into the sport. Mm -hmm. um, often it can be an older brother or sister that introduced it to them or it can be a parent that's an ex-rider. Yeah. Um, and you don't really want stage parents. You don't really want those that are living vicariously through their child's achievements because they're often under, often under pressure. They're all there because they love to do it. Hmm. But um, you can see some that a little bit more they come out of their skin a bit more when they're away from their parent than when they're around their parent. So that's what we're just trying to see, what kind of characters they had. Yeah. It's not an easy, you know, when you're told to go find the next two riders for, <laughs> for a team, for a company called Young Talent YT, it's a big ask. But, you know, we had a very, very successful fairy tale ending with Oshin winning the Worlds. And you couldn't, if you wrote a story like that for a movie, they'd say it was too cheesy, it's too obvious of, of an ending, but that's not obvious to us. You yeah. Know? We were looking long term there and first race and he wins the world. So it was a very special, special day for everybody. Yeah. I've heard you talk about the, an appreciation and understanding of time as something that you mm. feel is quite important in riders and races. Mm. Give us some thoughts but on that. that. That's their main opponent. Yeah. You know, you shouldn't be saying, you know, you know, he got me on this corner, he got me on that corner. It's like, you know, you're up against the clock and you need to understand what a tenth of a second is and what a half a second is and what a second is. If you crash and you claim, I lost 10 seconds in that crash, I'd really doubt it unless you are over the handlebars and down the tape off the course. Yeah. You probably lost, you know, depending on your, on your get up to speed 
time as well, you know, get back up to speed. But it depends if it was on a flat part of the course or not. But it's really important to know that if you wash out on a corner, did I lose three tenths there? Is there somewhere else on the track where I can go above my limit a little bit with low risk to get that three tenths back? Yeah. And Nicola Vuglio was really good at that. And so I would sit with Greg in airports waiting for flights with a stopwatch and I would just click it and say, how long's that? <laughs> and he'd just look and say, really? And I said, yeah, it's only that or whatever. And, you know, get, get, get used to the idea of how long time is. And so when you're coming over the last jump and you can see your name on the scoreboard, you know how long it is to get to the line, whether that's in reach or not to sprint for it. Yeah. You know, they're just, I think you just need to understand the enemy and the en- enemy is always the clock in life. Yeah. And, and you just need to understand how to measure it. So if, if you're in a time trial sport, you are naive and silly not to understand how long a second is yeah. and to be able to judge it properly. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think that's the key. It's not about... All you're looking at is how the other guys dealt with time on this track, mm-hmm. not with how they beat you or how you beat them. Yeah. So I've, you know, instead of getting on your PlayStation, let's do some time things. And, and also when they play the PlayStation, like the Formula One game I have here with a Formula One seat and everything, is if you crash out in the second corner, you can't hit restart. Keep going on the lap and treat, trying to improve it. You don't don't just give up and start again because yeah. you can't do that in racing. Okay. So, do you think it's a, a skill that can be learnt? Then it feels like you're you yes, of that opinion. Because in that scenario, what I'm getting them to do is to forget about the crash and get on with focusing. Mm. Because if you keep that crash in your mind, it plagues you all the way down the hill, and you get looser and untidier, and you make a mess of it. Whereas you got to, you, you'll see Manar when he's made a mistake. Always, it's just click. It just he clicks into the next mode. It's just forget that even happened. Yeah, yeah. Nothing I can do about it. I may can make some time up somewhere else that I've stored up for for a rainy day. But I just got to get on with it. You can't dwell on it. Get it to the line every time. Yeah, that's your job. I've seen people lose world championships in cans because they had a crash. I thought, well, it's all over in the women's racing, for example. I yeah, think, yeah. I think Miriam lost the world title because she thought, well, I've crashed. I'm out. But she didn't know that everyone else had crashed. So just get, you know, nearly everyone else, but get it to the line and yeah. then deal with what could have been and what should have been. But just get it to the line. And that's so. And the other thing I tell them to do is don't think about the line till you see it. There's too many people sort of get into, oh, that was a good sector. I might actually win this thing. And then their brain goes somewhere else and they lose concentration. Yeah, they get they ahead of themselves. Yeah. So just as soon as you see the line, you can think about it and think about the podium and all that, but nothing before then. Yeah. Just one sector at a time. All right. That's it for part one of this episode with Martin. I really hope you've enjoyed it and are excited to listen to part two tomorrow, where we're going to be discussing Red Bull and the Discovery Takeover, athlete management, and getting Martin's thoughts on how mountain biking is doing right now. A massive thank you to Wahoo for supporting this episode of the show. If you want to get your training on track, then Wahoo have got you covered with reliable and robust technology like heart rate monitors, bike computers, trainers, and your one-stop shop, the Element Rival GPS Watch. You can find out all about them and get your hands on them over at wahoofitness.com. Here's a few other links that might be useful to you too. Downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Forward slash shop to support the show by getting yourself some merch. And forward slash EP if you'd like to get your hands on copies of our lovely print project, Downtime EP. As always, spread the word and make sure as many people as possible are listening. That's it for today. We're going to have another awesome episode tomorrow, in fact. But until next time, get out and ride. (laughs) 